Hey, hey, welcome to another episode of Lifting the Fog, a podcast that hopes to become a collection of conversations offering support and connecting individuals affected by childhood cancer. So in this week's episode, I'm joined by Sarah Madura, a certified applied neuroscience teacher who works in a children's hospital and specifically with um, children affected by mental health on a behavioral health unit. So Sarah is super passionate about not only spreading awareness regarding mental health, but about how the brain works and how trauma can truly impact the brain and even its architecture, which really shouldn't be something so shocking to us. Um, Your mental health is your health. And I personally believe that it's just as important as your physical health. And I think Sarah would agree. Uh, So get ready to learn about the brain and to talk about the stigma that surrounds mental health. Um, So if you're out there and listening to this episode and wanting to connect with a mental health professional um, or seek out therapy, counseling, but you're just not sure what that looks like, or maybe you have preconceived notions of what therapy is um, and, and that it's not an option for you, well, this episode is for you. Um, So with that being said, I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode. I know that I did. And as always, please email us at LiftingTheFog1 with questions, comments, and thoughts for future conversations. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at LiftingTheFog1. All right, y'all. Without further ado, Sarah Madura. We're playing with lavender therapeutic putty. Um, Okay, so today I'm really excited for this conversation. Today we're joined by Sarah Madura. So Sarah is a educational liaison um, in a behavior health inpatient setting in a children's hospital. Um, She's a licensed elementary education and mild intervention teacher, and you're certified in applied educational neuroscience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So smart, aka super smart. <laughs> um, so I guess today, um, and I know Sarah, you two to just be really passionate about the brain and how it works and um, trauma informed care. And so, but I guess first, can you tell me a little bit more about what it means to be certified in applied educational neuroscience and how? What does that mean and how does that help you in your practice and working with children? Yeah, great question. So I um, work in the behavioral health unit um, and population. And so when I first got to Riley, I was not really prepared fully to best support um, the needs of my kids on the behavioral health unit. I didn't really feel like I was uh, knowledgeable enough on how to truly help them cope with things. Um, Our behavioral health unit sees a lot of kids with suicidality um, or severe anxiety and stemming from a lot of different things, whether it's medical diagnosis, whether it's trauma and a whole gamut of things. And I didn't really feel like I was quite prepared. I feel like I got a very great undergraduate experience and I'm a little biased. Go dogs, go Butler. <laughs> um, however, both Butler <laughs> alumni, no big deal. <laughs> um, and it was a wonderful undergraduate, but it just is something we are seeing more and more often. Um, people are feeling less prepared in the education field to deal with the behaviors and the um, emotional needs that we're seeing. And so I had the opportunity to go back for a certification of applied educational neuroscience with Dr. Lori Desita at Butler. And it completely changed my life, how I'm able to cope um, myself with my anxieties, with um, just dealing and communicating with people, with um, supporting my kids, with advocating for them going back to school. Um, And really what applied educational neuroscience is, is understanding the brain, not we are I'm not a neuroscientist by any means. I am not a physician. I am not a scientist. Uh, but it's taking the knowledge and the research of that field and really uh, integrating it within education. It's kind of the intersection between education, psychology, neuroscience. And it's that wow. middle point of just kind of understanding where behaviors come from on a scientific level and then how to uh, best utilize your ability to communicate with kids, with people, um, to get the best results academically too. So that's kind of a brief overview of it. Well, I think that was a really 
good overview <laughs> and kind of lays that out because um, I've been interested in the program as well. We were just talking about that, but not totally sure, knowing, of course, that surely it would help me in my practice, but even that is helpful to me. I feel like that's a good explanation of it. And certainly a child's mental health and how their brain is functioning impacts what kind of a learner they are absolutely, and how they can function at school. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I have seen you, um, cause of course have known you, um, when, you know, prior to you starting the certificate and then until now, and I've seen it change your life and really, um, motivate you absolutely. and you're such an advocate. Um, and so, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's yeah. That's, that's helpful. That's validating to yeah. hear that. Oh. And I think it's, I think you would agree too. I think we have a lot of work to do, but in general, mental health is really at the forefront and at the tip of people's tongues. And I feel like Mm -hmm. we're starting to, this is an issue. It's a crisis. Mm -hmm. It's not an issue. It's like a, Mm -hmm. it's a crisis. And um, teachers don't feel prepared. Parents don't feel prepared. Mm -hmm. Uh, People even in the, you know, hospital medical setting don't Mm -hmm. fully feel prepared Mm -hmm. and know how to support patients and families. So um, it's really great. I know you're an asset to our team to have, have that knowledge, but thank you. Yeah. So I guess, um, I have always thought of when we think about oncology and children diagnosed with, um, a life, possibly life limiting, mm-hmm. um, disease, I have always kind of described it as what I feel is like this trauma bomb that goes off in a family mm-hmm. that life is pretty normal. And then all of a sudden you get this diagnosis and everything has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if that's necessarily true. Is a cancer diagnosis a trauma for mm-hmm. a family? That's a great question. And again, I mean, I'm by no means a psychologist, a scientist, physician, any of that. Um, but when we're looking at the science, we're learning about it. Uh, there's something that is very significant. And uh, I know that you know about this, but the ACE study, the Adverse Childhood Experience Study, is um probably one of the most significant studies that we will see in our time uh, mm-hmm. for public health and forming public health. And that was really the first study that proved a relationship between traumas and later health concerns. So um, whether that was behaviorally, whether that was physically, medically, emotionally, socially, um, so that is was a very huge study and informs a lot of what uh, we are doing in the hospital, what we're trying to uh, move towards in education and social work. Um, but what they've been finding since that study came out uh, almost, uh, almost 30 years ago now, um, that the definitions that, and the, the adversities that they focused on, it was a 10 question survey. Mm -hmm. And what they found is that the definitions of trauma and adversity have actually expanded. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of studies coming out to say that it's going to be very difficult to put a number on what your ACE score is, um, because there could be hundreds and some people say thousands. And so what I really go back to when I am talking to schools, when I'm talking to um, educators, when I'm doing trainings about this, I say, well, we don't really want to focus specifically on defining what what trauma is, you know, something traumatic to you might not feel traumatic to me Mm -hmm. and vice versa. It's Mm -hmm. all about perception. And that Mm -hmm. goes back to our brain and our amygdala and how it perceives threat. Um, But I always go back to there's three types of stress. One is positive stress, one's tolerable stress, and one's toxic stress. And on the one side, positive stress is good. We want positive stress. It you know, increases our cortisol levels. It kind of puts us on high alert for a little bit, but it's predictable. Um, We know it's going to end things like public speaking or taking a test or um, being late to work or anything that kind of elevates those cortisol levels. But Mm -hmm. you know, you're going to be safe. You know, you're going to be okay. And that builds resiliency. Positive stress builds resiliency. And that's what we want to do for kids. We want to build resiliency. Um, So then they learn for the next time they're feeling that elevated level mm-hmm. of cortisol that they're like, oh, I've felt this way before. I got through it. Here are the skills I used. I can get through this too. On the other side, though, we have toxic stress. And those are uh, stressful situations that do raise the cortisol levels, but it's unpredictable. We don't know when it's going to end and it could be life-threatening. Not, not doesn't have to be life-threatening, but um, that is 
definitely a, a piece of that. So when I'm doing those trainings and we're looking at adverse childhood experiences, those are all toxic, stressful situations. So um, in my definition and my understanding of toxic stress, this absolutely a cancer diagnosis, um, any sort of chronic illness diagnosis, you don't know when it's going to end. It completely changes your life. Um, you don't know how tomorrow is going to look. You don't know how next year is going to look. Um, as a parent as well, you don't know your entire world's turned upside down. And mm -hmm. because you can never fully feel relaxed, your brain is just constantly on the verge of getting ready for the next time you need to jump into fight, flight, or freeze. You're kind of always, especially if um, – parents have had an experience or kids have had the experience where they might have had to go to the hospital very abruptly or quickly or um, anything like that, that would kind of further that. So in my mm -hmm. understanding of trauma, adversity, toxic stress, I would say absolutely. It, it messes with your brain and it messes with your nervous system. So that would be my interpretation of it. And I mean, you touched on this a little bit already in, in just explaining that, but this isn't just a toxic stress for the patient, the child diagnosed, mm -hmm. but of course the whole family unit. So siblings, um, parents, mm -hmm. I mean, certainly that core immediate family, but even people in their community. Mm -hmm. Um, so this is, a this is affecting, um, not just the patient, but certainly the family. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. Educational liaisons and us with child life and just everybody communicating with families, with patients, with uh, community members. That's where we, I really see our ability to come in uh, and try to lessen that toxic stress and make it to that third type of stress, which is the tolerable. That's in the middle, which is we don't. It's not something that we would wish upon somebody or want it. It could be very life-changing. It could be life-altering, such as a cancer diagnosis. But uh, it, you can move things from toxic stress to tolerable stress by buffering with supportive relationships. Um, and so that's where we do see resiliency building in communities with kids, with families, um, if we are able to kind of surround them with love, surround them with care and go along this journey beside them. It can't be, you can't work through this in isolation. You can't work through toxic stress in isolation. Um, and so that's where I really see trying to encourage people to recognize when these things are happening to a loved one, to a neighbor, to a student or somebody in your school community, because we have that ability to really wrap them up in our arms and help them um, to lessen that toxic stress and create more tolerable stress. And tolerable stress does build resiliency later. So that's kind of, that's our duty, I think, as community members. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's why you and I are so passionate about the work we do. It's so mm -hmm. much advocacy. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of times I find, I think all people want to do good mm -hmm. and want to be good mm -hmm. people or make good choices rather. But, um, and I think when that falls flat, it's just a lack of understanding and knowledge and knowing how to support somebody. Absolutely. And I think when people um, in our lives are going through trauma, we, um, you know, don't want to say the wrong thing, don't want mm -hmm. to do the wrong thing. So um, almost back off. Mm -hmm. uh, and the podcast that I just did last week with Rhea, mm -hmm. um, who is a cancer survivor, and she's now a nurse in our oncology clinic, she talks about how, you know, at the beginning of the diagnosis, she was just surrounded by, mm -hmm. uh, she said she kept a journal, a log of who was visiting her, and over 300 people came oh, and visited her when gosh. she was inpatient. Oh. So like a true testament to she, you know, the family and she Absolutely. were just surrounded by support and love, but that that dissipated mm -hmm. within the months following. And, you know, we know that leukemia is like a three year long, two to three year long treatment. So for two months of that, you get support, but then it right. goes away. Mm -hmm. And how, how even traumatic is that? Right. Like, oh, my, you know, all these people left me and mm -hmm. what does that mean? And so, um, so I guess that's kind of like a loaded comment. There's lots in that to like <laughs> unpack. But one being that um, I think just to under, the understanding of like just the diagnosis isn't just the only toxic absolutely right. um, stress that's mm -hmm. happening. It's like ebbs and waves of, of it um, and things can be fine and then not fine mm -hmm. quickly. 
Um, and then also talking, you know, talking about how to, how to support people when you feel like you don't know the right thing to say or don't want to say the wrong thing. Um, so maybe let's first talk about how, um, that toxic stress can just continue, you know, it's not just the initial diagnosis that that can continually happen on treatment. And then certainly even as the child goes off of treatment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I think that the, really the true definition of toxic stress is that it is chronic and that you don't, it's not predictable of when it's going to end. And so with a cancer diagnosis, even if you are in remission, you still kind of always have that fear in the back of your mind that, okay, well, what if it comes back? Or what if I have to go through that again? And Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. even survivors, I would think, probably feel the same thing. You know, what if it does come back? So that it is absolutely not just the diagnosis. And sometimes that diagnosis period, you're just kind of in shock. So you don't feel all of the emotions that later come. And that is, I think, one of the most common things that I hear for any sort of trauma or grief or anything is, um, it felt really good to have people there at first and it was wonderful, but then everybody kind of goes back to their lives and that feels even more isolating and lonely. Mm -hmm. Um, And just educating each other about that and talking about it is helpful. And I think is really important and crucial because we need people to be able to go through things with that's what our brain is wired for survival and connection before logic, before reasoning, before anything else. And so we need, we were wired to, connect with people and um, to be supported by people. And I think I loved the, um, the podcast you did with David, Dr. Schoenfeld. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I mean, I had heard him before too, obviously, but I think that his work is so powerful because it's just saying that saying something is better than saying nothing um, and learning how to validate. I love not, that yeah. quote in itself too. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And it's, it's powerful though. It's so powerful. And I always go back to that. And I mean, I'm not perfect at it. I'm absolutely not perfect about it, but knowing what I know about the brain now and just my life experiences too, I have, uh, it is so much better to say something and to learn how to validate. You don't need to know the right answer. Um, most of the time people don't even want you to know the an no. answer or say yeah. an answer because yes. we're not functioning in the logical part of our brain. And so if you try to like fix it or Brene Brown has a wonderful video on she's empathy. Wonderful. She's incredible. Um, she has a really awesome video on empathy that I show when I talk about you know, the co-regulating and uh, educational neuro- neuroscience. And it's, um, it's empathy versus sympathy is the video and it's a cute little Ooh, animation. That's, a, that's already a, like a, it's drawing me. Yeah, it's, oh, it's so good, and it's—I mean, two and a half minutes long. It's yeah. short. It's okay, a cute little cartoon. So good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she has a quote in there that I love, and she says, "You know, when somebody shares something with us that is difficult or vulnerable, mm-hmm. um, our first initial reaction is to try to silver lining it. So we want to say, um, well, you know, at least you still have so many people that love you. You know, like, oh, I have a cancer diagnosis, but well, at least, you know, you're at a great hospital getting treated. Yeah. And yeah. that is actually um, kind of invalidating a little bit. Absolutely. So all that validation is, is being with people and and feeling with them. She talks about that too. It's really feeling with people um, and just saying, I have literally no idea what to say to you. I don't know. I don't want to make things worse. I just want you to know I'm here and I'm going to be with you. And I don't know what to do, but I know you don't know what to do either. And we'll figure it out together. Yeah. And that is, that's validation. You yeah. don't have to know the right thing to say. You don't know, how, you don't need to know how to fix it because most of the time you can't. No. And even if you do know how to fix it or um, that somebody's overreacting about something. Are they ready to hear that? Not ready to hear it. They're yeah. not in that part of their brain. Yeah. So that's been, I think, the biggest thing that I've learned through all the neuroscience stuff is just kind of how to be there for people when I have not experienced what I, what they've experienced. And I think if, you know, everybody has been through some sort of stress in their Mm -hmm. life. So I think if you really try to, you know, think of your own situations in your Mm -hmm. own life and the times that you've worked through stress, what I've always known that I needed and appreciated is just somebody listening to me Mm -hmm. and and validating me Mm -hmm. like that 
does suck. Mm-hmm. Just somebody saying that even, you know, if you're venting or upset and that does suck. And I'm sorry that you're dealing with that. Mm-hmm. And I'm here for you. You don't, like you said, you don't have to know the right answers or the right things to say. And even, um, I think it was the second podcast that I did with Jess, um, mm-hmm. who was talking about yeah. being bald mm-hmm. and all of the words or phrases or things people said when it came to her hair loss that she didn't appreciate. Mm-hmm. And I was learning so much thinking, right. oh my gosh, I've probably done that. Right. Absolutely. And I probably said those things. And But she said in that podcast that I know, you know, there certainly were times that people um, right. we need to learn we're, we're not making good choices, <laughs> um, as my three-year-olds say, not making good choices. But also, you know, I think she she could read the times that that person was trying to be supportive Absolutely. and, right. you know, maybe the verbiage wasn't, mm-hmm. um, you know, how she would have wanted it, but just knowing that that person was, was trying. Absolutely. And I think people can differentiate that. Mm-hmm. Um, but just being there and listening is so important. Um, but yeah, I've heard that so often in clinic that at the beginning, it just feels like this surge of support and that that kind of, kind of dissipates. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that physically being there for people throughout an entire thing is probably the hardest thing to do, but the most important thing that you can do Mm -hmm. physically being there for somebody as they're going through it. You don't have to say anything. Yeah physically being with somebody that hits the part of our brain that they're probably functioning. Yeah. And I would also say that uh, pretty much across the board, all of, you know, our kids that we see with a cancer diagnosis, they just want to be normal. Mm -hmm. They don't want to be the kid with cancer. They don't want to be sick. So like you said, physically just being there Mm -hmm. and going to the movies with them or Mm -hmm. still calling them and chatting on the phone like you would normally is so important because it's you just acknowledging that they are still, you know, the normal same person yeah. that they were before all of this and that this isn't defining who they, who they are. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. Yeah. Okay. So you talked about toxic stress. I feel like there's another one that we're leaving out. Um, say the three types again. Oh, yeah. So positive. Positive. Toxic. toxic. And then in the middle, that's tolerable. And so that's when we can okay. kind of like. What was an, like a good example of Yeah. So, stress. I mean, one is maybe getting in a car accident or, I mean, I oftentimes use examples in my presentations about kids coming to Riley with a, a diagnosis of something. So let's say cancer. You know, mm-hmm. we have um, one the child diagnosed with cancer on one side and um, another one maybe in the room next to it. If we have two separate situations of, you know, maybe family isn't um, able to be here all the time. Maybe the community isn't really involved or supportive. Maybe people are kind of um, taking a backseat to being supportive of them. And then on the other hand, we have uh, people that are, you know, visiting for 300 people in yeah. that room or sending school is sending videos, school is sending cards, yeah. they're FaceTiming, uh, anything. Those are all ways to buffer the toxic stress and make it tolerable stress. So we might have two kids with the same diagnosis and the rooms next to each other and one is experiencing uh, less tolerable stress. You know, that, that toxic stress, the same toxic stress that they are experiencing, one is a bit better buffered than the other one because they have those supportive relationships and that community support. Um, and the other one is kind of dealing with it more in isolation and families too, you know, the families might not be feeling that, that support by their community or family or loved ones. And so how also common would it be for, um, a family to have toxic stress throughout, let's say again, a cancer diagnosis and treatment and, and, but it, become tolerable because of those buffers and support. But then after that chapter maybe is, well, I don't know if it's ever said and done, but let's say after um, the the child be Mm disease-free, they ring the bell, they're disease-free, and then they start coping with or feeling that toxic stress or the negative implications of it mm-hmm. c- coming to fruition. Absolutely. I mean, just because it's tolerable, you know, it's buffered, the toxic stress is buffered, doesn't mean that it won't have any impact. And it definitely, it's, um, you can still have triggers, you can still have uh, I mean, those trauma triggers that uh, it messes with your nervous system, and it messes with your brain. And so that absolutely, and especially for 
kids, you know, if they are dealing with this during before their 18 years of life, that's why the adverse childhood experiences study was so significant because it really looked at um, from zero to 18. I mean, honestly, really, it starts in birth, our brain starts developing, you know, in the womb. And so um, from that point, from conception to age 18, if you have some sort of adversity or toxic stress, it messes with the formation of your brain architecture. That's the most vulnerable time of brain development. Um, that's when most of our brain is really forming. Our brain does not fully form until we're like 25 to 28, but that's from until 18. That's the most vulnerable time of brain development. So you probably will have some things that might come up later, but the more that we can talk about this and adverse childhood experiences and toxic stress is not a death sentence or not a sentence that, you know, you will have mental health issues for the rest of your life or that you can't be successful. That's what I was going to ask. Like, okay, how resilient is the brain Mm -hmm. though? Like, if this is happening in those really formidable years of conception to 18, that you're dealing with toxic stress Mm -hmm. and that it can, like you said, change the architecture of your brain, how resilient is your brain to if you have therapy or Mm -hmm. a supportive system, or even if it's 10 years after um, you ring the bell and you're coping with this toxic stress that you're able to change the architecture of Mm -hmm. your brain once again? Absolutely. So the cool thing about our brain is that it has something called neuroplasticity. And so that's the ability for our brain to change at any time in our life. Like that saying that says you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And technically you can, but it's just, it's hard (laughs) because we have um, neural connections in our brain. And so Mm -hmm. for every single thing we've ever learned, whether that's through being taught it or through experience and um, experience and things attached to emotion automatically are stronger neural connections in our brain. Um, Wow. That makes so much sense. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And so for everything we've learned, we have a neural connection and every time that we practice that, it's just like working out a muscle, our brain muscles called myelin. And so it myelinates that, you know, it's a myelin sheath around that neural connection. And pretty much when I and I show my friends, I like literally have like straws and then we like wrap Play-Doh or Saran wrap around it. Or if I do it with my kids here, it's straws and Play-Doh and yeah. it with celery and prosciutto. Um, you literally, that sounds, that sounds delicious. <laughs> so you literally, you so if you the, do that with me, I would prefer the celery and prosciutto. Please no thanks. Yes. Noted. Um, but really it's talking about, okay, you have two neurons that come together. So that would be the two celery or straws yeah. or whatever you're using. Okay. And then you wrap myelin every time you practice it, you wrap it around and you see it physically becoming stronger. That's what's happening in your brain. And so if you've had so many years of practicing a certain coping skill, or that's what we say with our kids, you know, in our unit, um, the therapies that we use are Mm -hmm. all really honestly brain aligned and neuroscience based. It's trying to change your thinking patterns. And if you've had a way of thinking for so long, um, saying, you know, every time that I feel poorly, it means that I need to go to the hospital. Let's use that one. You know, Mm -hmm. every time that I feel this way, I need, uh, you know, what I learned was that the last time I felt poorly, I went to the hospital and got a cancer diagnosis. So I'm feeling poorly right now. Your brain is going to tell you I need to go to the hospital or I am not okay. And you might feel that anxiety popping up Mm -hmm. because you have a pretty strong neural connection about that. Um, For if you want to change that, you can't just say, I'm not going to think that way anymore. You have to create a new neural pathway that you strengthen just as much plus like one further than the other one. So if you're using that, the physical method of we're looking at the straws or celery or whatever, yeah, we literally say, okay, if you've wrapped five times around that neural pathway, now we got to wrap it six times around that other one. And that's when it becomes stronger. So it is work to do that. It definitely is work, um, but it can be done. Our brains are very resilient. The misconception, I think, about resilience is that it's a choice, though. Or you're Um, born with it. Or you're born with it. Nobody really, I mean, everybody has the capability of being resilient, um, but it can't only be born in isolation. And that's where co-regulation, that's where relationships come in. Because 
neuroplasticity is a more cognitive function. If you are trying to change your brain and trying to change your thinking patterns, you have to be functioning in the cognitive part of your brain Mm -hmm. and you can't get there if you have not taken care of the survival and emotional piece, your brain doesn't get there. Um, And so it can't, it's not an individual choice all the time. Uh, We can't say if a kid doesn't have a supportive system um, or if families don't have a supportive community system that it's completely up to them to be able to, to change that. Um, so we can absolutely be resilient and it does take a lot of individual work for sure, but it also is the responsibility of us as family members, community members, um, friends, family, whatever it is to support them and be there with them to aid them in that process of building resiliency. So, and also thinking about, um, cause I heard you say a few times, like the brain, you're not in that space to, mm-hmm. you know, your brain isn't even able to do that yet. You're not in that, that space to be able to do that. And I'm thinking about some of our kids that are very reluctant to participate mm-hmm. in any sort of therapy because I just don't, and I just don't think they're ready to do that right. yet. They're feeling angry. They're not, um, they haven't moved to that space where they are ready to try to implement or, or um, you know, strengthen that part mm-hmm. of their brain. Um, how do we help kids get there? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, first of all, I think that as a society, we need to do better at uh, talking more about different types of therapy and Absolutely. destigmatizing therapy because um, even my misconceptions about therapy until I was like 23 years old – I had a lot of misconceptions that I just are not true. And there are a lot of different types of therapy and it's not always just having to sit down and talk to somebody. We have, even here, we have art therapy, we have music therapy, Mm -hmm. we have all of these things. And those actually are really helpful to meet kids. um, If they're not ready to talk about it, you meet them where they are in their brain. And that's where music and art therapy start. That's exactly where they're starting in that. I even um, love that. Meet them where they are in their brain. Meet yeah, them where they're at. Absolutely. You can't expect them to jump five hurdles mm-hmm. if we haven't even you know, get over the first one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 100%. And so I think that that's the first barrier. But okay. just kids have a stigma mm-hmm. of therapy absolutely. or a misconception about therapy. So we have to do better at, at talking about that and, and making it more accessible to get different types of therapy too, whether it's art therapy, whether it's music therapy, whether it's talk therapy, whether it's dialectical behavioral therapy, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, whether it's trauma focused, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, there are lots of different outlets, so many, so many different types of outlets. Um, and they all target a specific need. And so some people need I personally have only done talk therapy and that's been really helpful to me because I can talk forever. And I have a lot of support that meets me where I am. I've had that community support. I've had the family support. And so I was taking care of that way. I just needed to process through some things and I Mm -hmm. needed to learn new ways to cope and to grieve and to just move on. And so that worked for me. But a lot of our kids, if you've had, if you've had a trauma, I mean, if you, had any adverse experience, then trauma-focused therapy might be better for you. Or some kids that just really aren't there putting words together yet and can't and don't want to, maybe art therapy, maybe music therapy, all of these different types of therapies um, or therapeutic activities can really help to prime them for engaging more in therapies. Um, So I think that's a, a second barrier for sure. But I also think that sometimes as, I mean, I am not a parent, but I think that as parents, you also do have the capability of just saying, okay, we're just doing this. And then hoping that maybe the therapist will be able to recognize, okay, we're not ready to talk. Let's just build rapport. And let's just, um, maybe we can do some activities together. And a lot of therapists do that. And maybe that's, they're not ready to talk the first couple times, but eventually it'll be a safe space for them. And um, so I think there's a lot of different barriers, but. And I think that you can, um, I do this a lot with my three-year-old where I'm going to make the choice for you, but make you feel like you have a choice. Absolutely. So if I want you to go to bed, mm-hmm. um, I can say, well, do you want to go to bed now 
or do you want to go to bed in two minutes, you know, and he's still going to bed. You know, um, that so, strategy. But where you're giving and then he feels um, – and it it works. Absolutely. I mean, they want to have autonomy. They want to have mm-hmm. control, some control in their life, don't we all? Right. And so I think that you can say to your and, – and getting back to how you said and as – a parent, you know, we can just help make that choice for them as this is a necessity that you need to be yeah. finding outlets and coping skills because this is a lot that's mm-hmm. on your plate. Um, but I think you can still, you can push, you know, make, help make that decision for your child and still have them have choice in it. Yes, like, absolutely. listen, you know, Sarah, you're going through a lot and I love you and I notice changes in you and I just want you to feel supported. So I know that this doesn't feel natural and you're not into it, but what about here are three different options. Mm -hmm. Which one would you want to try first? We have to choose one because you need support right now, but which one, you know, would you want to do? Do you want to try art therapy or music therapy or sitting down and talking with somebody? So it doesn't have to be like, you're just going to this therapist. They can still have choice in it, but there's still the end result is your child's getting support. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. And I also think that, you know, as parents, it's not only good, but sometimes vital that you also do that. You are also going through a lot and you can't, a dysregulated brain can't regulate a dysregulated brain. So it might, uh, you know, a lot of families we work with, they say, well, it feels selfish to focus on getting knee therapy right now when my kid is in the hospital for mental health issues and they need the therapy. And I, it's not time for me to focus on myself, but what we say is support them. You need to be healthy. And also modeling is very powerful. And so if they see that therapy is a safe space for you as their parent who they respect and love and adore, then that might be the thing that they need to kind of push them to accept it and and do it. And how powerful for you to say to your, you know, let's say 15 year old, I I really think this would be beneficial for you to do. You're going through a lot and you know what, I'm going to do it too. I'm going to do this with you. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, this is safe and Mm -hmm. I'm going to do it. And I think you were talking about that, you know, obvious like taboo just in therapy in general, but I also feel like there's this, or stigma rather, I also feel like there's this stigma with just being vulnerable, that it's girly or Mm -hmm. it's, um, you know, you know, suck it up, be a man or be, Mm -hmm. especially for our boys, um, but you know, girls too, that there's just a stigma with being vulnerable Mm -hmm. and what that looks like. And if you let your guard down, you're going to get hurt or, um, so I think, fixing, I guess for lack of a better word, the stigma of therapy and the benefit. And then also just that being vulnerable is okay and yeah. super healthy. In Absolutely. Fact. <laughs> yeah. And it's actually really powerful for our brain and really good for us and really good to create connections with people too. And so yeah, I could not agree with you more. Ding dong, ding <laughs> dong. Um, well, I just, I just think that that is um, you know, all of this thus far, like really love this conversation, but, um, I feel like you've helped give, um, a lot of different just supports and ideas on how to one help, um, help with the stigma that's associated with being vulnerable and, you know, utilizing therapy, but then also there's so many different options. Um, and I, I don't know, I just think that every child, Um, with a specifically, you know, in oncology, because of course that's, um, you know, that's what this podcast is about Mm -hmm. supporting um, pediatric cancer patients, but certainly any child with a cancer diagnosis could uh, benefit Mm -hmm. from some sort of therapy to help them cope with this. It's it's a big deal. Uh It's a huge life change and um, a stressor, toxic stress for the child and the family unit. And so um, family, the whole family, the patient could benefit from some sort of um, therapy, counseling, coping skills, and that can look different for every person. Mm -hmm. And that's really, I think that the if we're moving towards destigmatizing therapy, it's not that there's something wrong with you. Every single person in this world, I think, needs a therapist as much as they need a primary care physician. And maybe you check in once a year, some years, and then other years you're checking in once, maybe twice a week. And Your mental health is your health. Absolutely. And our mental health is connected to our physical health. Absolutely. It's so connected. Even your example of when you had me close my eyes and Mm -hmm. I – my 
hands are getting sweaty and my heart is racing, so my emotions are tied to a physical response, Mm -hmm. is proof in itself in a simple one-minute exercise that my emotions are tied to the physical well-being of my body. Absolutely. Yes. And there are so many times, and I do think that um, we are really lucky here that we have a lot of physicians that do um, look deeper than just what's manifesting right there. And so they do make sure that they're taking into consideration the entire child and not just saying, Oh, you have a stomach ache. Let's get you on some, uh, let's get you. And that's hard to find in healthcare. Absolutely. And it's it's okay to healthcare is a choice. So Mm -hmm. it's okay for you to, if you feel like, you know, you're not surrounded by a medical community that's, that's um, valuing your health as a whole, Mm -hmm. your mental health, your physical health. It's okay to find that because it's important. Mm -hmm. I've wondered and I've done a little bit of just like researching and and trying to read up on, and again, preface, Sarah and I are not doctors, (laughs) Um, but the response that children would have with treatment if they had a really robust, great mental health support along the way, mm-hmm. what would be the changes and how their body would, would respond so to treatment yeah, that would be and respond so to chemo to see, because if you're stressed, well, I've read a couple of things that do suggest that yes, mm-hmm. that good diet and exercise and good mental health, <coughs> excuse me, um, would lend to your body better tolerating. Yeah. yeah. That'd be the best word, like tolerating chemo and, um, drugs. There was actually, there was a vice, um, short docu-series on it um, that oh, kind of talked about, especially cool. nutrition, that, that um, but also Makes mental sense. health. And yeah. exercise is a form of mm-hmm. therapy or and, coping. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't say therapy, but maybe a coping skill. Too, so, yes, yeah. yeah. But if those things are, if you have that supportive system that, I don't know, would your body respond better to therapy? Yeah. I don't know. I would We're not so. doctors. Right. But I would We're think. Definitely not doctors. I would think it's not. Um, hard to try. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Oh, I, I completely agree. And I think that just everybody in mental health in general is you, you have, everybody has physical health. Everybody has mental health. If people have this stigma that when you say mental health, it's automatically negative, but you can have really good mental health too. And you can have good mental health one year and not have great mental health the next year. That's not a bad thing. And if you, you know, for we told you you had um, cancer, but you didn't need chemo because, well, you needed chemo, but it was your choice, you know, and I mean, technically it always is a choice, but if you, you would never elect not to do it, knowing that it could ruin your body and possibly kill you. Same thing with mental health. If we tell you that you have, um, you would benefit from better coping skills or learning a different way to why think. Do, why or, does it feel like such a choice? Yes, right. And why does it feel like I'm weak if I do that? If you have a uh, cough, we're going to give you medicine for it. Yeah. And if you have anxiety, we're going to help you with it. And yeah. Most people these days do have anxiety too, and especially our kids. There's a really good book called iGen, and it's all about this new generation and saying how um, everybody everybody has anxiety. Everybody has anxiety now. It's rampant. And yes. there's a ton of reasons. Technology is definitely one of them because yes. it's you for the first time in that um, zero to 18 range of mm-hmm. most vulnerable time of mm-hmm. brain development, you have access to a, uh, smartphone or a smart device at all times. And it's, um, kids are growing up less resilient, not their fault. Um, we just need to combat it in a different way. And part of that is learning new coping skills and doing things that are healthy for our brain and good for our brain. And so that's just baseline. And then add a cancer diagnosis on top of it. You absolutely, we, we need to, and it's not going to harm anybody. Therapy is not going to harm, learning new coping skills isn't going to harm anything. Absolutely. It's good for everybody. Absolutely. That's 100% needed and crucial. Yeah. I wanted to ask you too about, um, so I was also excited to have you on and talk to you because I know that cancer has personally affected you and your family. And I wonder if you would just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, no, definitely. So um, I, my dad actually was diagnosed with cancer. I fortunately was out of the range for the ACEs experience. So, but I was, 
19, I guess. Um, it was my sophomore year of college at mm-hmm. Butler. And it was honestly a couple days ago was like the anniversary of when we found out um, that he had, he was having some weird kind of like neurological symptoms um, and a swollen lymph node. So we thought it was going to be lymphoma. Um, and then we found out it was actually melanoma. And then he was having further neurological issues, had to be kind of rushed to the hospital um, beginning of November and had emergency brain surgery and uh, he had a brain bleed. I didn't know that. Yeah. And so they um, did that and then found that it was caused by a tumor that was there. And what had happened was it really manifested from melanoma. Oh, geez. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. And then it metastasized to his brain. And so he ended up having two brain surgeries, full brain radiation, um, and then got like a really rare symptom or something that ended up it was terminal um and so a year and a half after that so it was february 12th of 2015 was when he passed away so that was so you were not you weren't living at home i was not living at home i was a junior in college when he passed away so and so he got diagnosed if he said this time a year pretty you had been in school a couple months. Yeah. So it was actually, it was a year, it was like a year and a half. So I was, it was the beginning of my sophomore year when he was diagnosed and then second semester of my junior year when he passed away. So yeah. And it was, I mean, everything that we were talking about, about you know everybody, it was very, very, I, I didn't tell a lot of people and my family wasn't very vocal about it for a while. Uh, but I had a really good support system at Butler I don't know if that was mine. Sorry. <laughs> um, I had a very good support system at yeah, Butler. And so that was very helpful. Um, and then when we did start, I, I could feel the difference in my ability to cope and do school when I was vocal about it with people and when I wasn't. And so when he wow. ended up uh, passing away that first month was honestly, I, it's so weird to say that I, there are, I have honestly a lot of fond memories of that month because it was the worst time of my life, but it was also, I had never had that much community support. My dad was very involved in the community. So we had every day, I mean, so many he felt really loved. so loved he had yeah. hundreds of people at his funeral hundreds of people at his viewing and so it was just a constant hearing stories of my dad and yeah. he- feeling the support and uh, feeling like I wasn't alone and then a couple weeks after everybody kind of went back to their own lives and then that is when I really started struggling because I just felt like, well, how dare you all go back to your lives when my world is falling apart and I don't know how to go back to my normal and I have to go back to school and I have to finish the semester and I really don't want to and I don't want to do all of the trivial things that everybody is caring about and that I'm not caring about that much. And so I could feel the difference between that those first couple weeks when I had so much support versus when everybody kind of went back to their lives and it was nobody's fault. And people were still always checking in on me, you know, like my, my close friends, they were still there for me and everything. But um, just in general, like the community as a whole, just it makes a difference to have support or not. And I think that um, I went through a, a whole grief process. I, the, I mean, all seven stages of grief for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I actually, realized that I needed therapy when I was um, kind of acting, not acting out, but um, not really treating people the way that I used to. I was lashing out a lot. That's the word I wanted to use. I was lashing out at my mom, who was an angel. Um, (laughs) I was so rude to her in so many things. And thank God, I mean, she looked at me and she was like, this is not you. You Is this because of your grieving? Like, you need to go to therapy. And Thank God that, you know, we had that relationship that she could say that and she recognized it as deeper than just the behaviors. Um, And I did go to therapy and it really helped. And I did not choose the first therapist that I went to. I really did not drive with her. And I then found somebody that I did and really helped me to process through it and cope and find ways to celebrate my dad. And, um, and so, yeah, that was that has shaped me a lot has absolutely shaped me a lot. And, but it has just really taught me 
that the importance of community and really truly because I feel like that first month I was very buffered by all of those community supports and relationships. Um, and so it made it a little more tolerable than toxic stress for me. Your dad is so proud of you. He's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, thank you for sharing. You're so, I, I could just geek out on this brand stuff for a long well, time. It's you so, do and take the course. Maybe this can be part one <laughs> I love it. of many conversations, <laughs> but is there any like, um, Lasting, ooh, I know, one of our segments is our I Wish segments. So, not to put you on the spot, but if you had to do an I Wish um, for for the world to know about, you know, mental health, Hmm. that's a biggie. What what would you say? Um, I wish that the world knew about the brain, how it worked, and everything like neuroscience, because it changes everything, and it changes... I changed my view even on um, like our justice justice system, our juvenile justice system, our adult justice system. Most of the people don't get me in, started. <laughs> <laughs> most of the people uh, that are you know, incarcerated incarcerated are um, the ones that we quote unquote have to worry about publicly have had trauma that wasn't buffered by are the supportive relationships. Yes. Yeah. And so that is, it's not one person's job. It's not the parent's job. It's, I mean, it's parent's job and community. It's yeah. everybody has a part in this. Everybody has the ability to um, be that uh, person to help them um, co-regulate, to help them learn coping skills, to build resiliency. It can't be in isolation. So it's not something that they can just learn. It has to be somebody really um and multiple people is better, but it really I takes one person. Right. Yeah. And I, I love that. It yeah. really takes, it just one the person world. can make a yeah. difference. Mm-hmm. And that's what I wish that all of our systems, education, medical, again, I mean, we, I feel like we do a, a very good job here. I'm mm-hmm. in um, children's hospitals in general. I feel like do a better job at uh, prioritizing relationships and connection over anything else and our schools are moving we are trying to keep that at the forefront but um kind of top-down policies are taking that ability away Mm -hmm. um and making it focus more on cognitive functions and if our kids aren't coming into school with that then we can't get anywhere else and so i just wish that the world knew about the brain, knew that we prioritize survival and connection before anything else. And that that's what we need. We need to connect and we need to connect in person more and not over the phone all the time. And that's not an opinion. That's science. It's science. It's science. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you, Sarah. This was great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Lifting the Fog. As always, please email us at liftingthefog1 at gmail.com because we want to hear from you with your questions, concerns, thoughts, and ideas for future conversations. And subscribe, whether it's on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, but please subscribe and rate us. We would also love if you followed us on Instagram and Twitter um, at liftingthefog1, and we're also on Facebook at liftingthefog. And as always, Lifting the Fog is an independent podcast. All information, thoughts, and opinions shared are for informational purposes only. No material on this podcast is intended to be substituted for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please always seek the advice of your qualified health provider with any questions that you may have. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great week, y'all.